you have come, I understand, to Lord's Day 51 of the Heidelberg Catechism uh, this afternoon. In connection therewith, we will read from Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, hear the word of God. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he who rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. But he, as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, <coughs> Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. 
But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw them into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive <coughs> his brother his trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. And then we turn to Lord's Day 51 of the Catechism. What is the fifth petition? <coughs> Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That is, for the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, wretched sinners, any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us, as we also find this evidence of your grace in us that we are fully de determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. <clears throat> Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, can you imagine going through life without forgiveness? Think of what it would mean to live without ever being forgiven by other people. I once read a story about two unmarried sisters who shared a single room, and one day they had a dispute about some aspect of theology. The controversy was so bitter that the rest, for the rest of their lives, they never ever spoke again to one another. There were no words, either kind or spiteful. There was just this endless silence. One would think they would have parted company and gone their separate ways, but nothing of the sort. A chalk line was drawn across the floor. It divided the doorway and the fireplace so that each could go about doing what they had to do without stepping on the territory of the other. So they coexisted in their years for their, in their, of their hateful silence. Their meals, their friends, their family visitors were all exposed to their unfriendly silence. <coughs> and every night, each went to bed listening to the heavy breath of their enemy. In more real life, I once in a congregation I served to counsel an elderly couple who would live like that. They would have an argument. They wouldn't resolve it. They wouldn't speak to each other. Days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months went by without a word. There are, those are, no doubt, rather extreme examples, but they illustrate the point. What would it be like to live in a sinful world without forgiveness, without giving out forgiveness, or without ever needing to receive forgiveness. 
Maybe you today are living without having forgiven someone who has asked you for forgiveness. Maybe you are living today without being forgiven by someone whom you asked. The relationship isn't good, is it? Life is different than such situations. And that shows us why our Lord and Savior gave us the fifth petition, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Truly no one can pray these words and really mean them and yet remain as bitter and unforgiving as this. This one petition can be the healing ointment for a fractured home and broken human relationships. How we need to utter these words and not only utter them but live out of them. It's a prayer for forgiveness. Forgive us. Forgive me. It's a prayer for a forgiving spirit as we also forgive others. <coughs> Let's begin this time with a second clause. God's Word comes to you as it has been confessed by the church in Lord's Day 51 under this theme. God's remedy for living as a sinful person in a sinful world. The prayer for the forgiveness of sins. We will see that it's first of all a prayer for a forgiving spirit and secondly a prayer for forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, Augustine, his name came up this morning as well, once referred to this sentence of the Lord's Prayer as a terrible petition. He called it that because he realized that if we pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, with an unforgiving heart, we are actually asking God to not forgive us. We see this clearly if we substitute the word debt, the word sin. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Our Lord even sought so to impress this fact upon us that in Matthew 6, when He gives us the Lord's Prayer with all the petitions, He adds this conclusion about this petition, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It seems to me it's a good thing that the Lord spoke so absolutely. Because what does it do? It, it, it shakes us up at times. It, it brings us out of our complacency. It brings us to the very essence of the Christian faith. Forgiveness. Isn't that what our relationship with God is all about? It's about His forgiveness of our sins. Forgiveness before God. Forgiveness with each other. Charles Spurgeon once said, Unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant whenever you repeat the Lord's Prayer. You see, to live any other way stifles and paralyzes the Christian life. Think of it, the consequences of fear. Fear can paralyze you. Fear can make us stop dead in our tracks. If we are frightened by social rejection, parental disapproval, or peer judgment, this has effects on our behavior. It hampers our behavior. It can paralyze us. The fear of the police and the courts, the fear of Revenue Canada can have enormous consequences on your life, disabling you, immobilizing you. But realize as well, deep in the heart of every human being, there is a mysterious relationship between fear and guilt. 
Sin and wrongdoing brings with it guilt. Guilt leads to fear. And one of the greatest follies of our time is the failure to realize you can't shake guilt simply by speaking to the police or the judge or your psychiatrist about it. Guilt is ultimately a theological problem. Guilt needs to be dealt with before God. There's many a counselor today who wants to deal with guilt by only talking about guilt feelings No wonder they say you feel that way. After all, with that kind of upbringing, you're going to have those kind of feelings. Once you realize that, you'll be fine. No. Again and again, the guilt is still there. People still feel guilty because they are guilty. And the way to deal with a theological problem is to deal with God himself. We are ever so good at excusing ourselves, rationalizing, shifting the blame to other people, circumstances. We blame society. We blame our parents. We appear to everything. We, we appeal to everything we can to escape the pain of personal responsibility. We use every kind of avoidance mechanism. We've learned how to harden our hearts and to deaden our senses and build up our arguments as to why I should not do this forgiveness thing but it's still there. And it will continue to paralyze us and to adversely affect us and our behavior unless we come to understand guilt is a theological problem. You've got to wrestle that with God, the throne of grace. The wicked still flee, but no man pursues because of guilt. The pagan still trembles at the wrestling of a leaf. There remains a nagging, mostly unspoken fear that a displeased God is ready to pounce at some moment. So you see why the Christian life, and even human life in general, is impossible without forgiveness. Because forgiveness has this wonderful power to clear the past and invigorate life and relationships again. The love of God as experienced in the joy of forgiveness prevents the stiffening and hardening of the spirit. It restores our relationship with God. And from out of that root, it restores human relationships in human life. The married couple who do not practice the secret of daily forgiveness, removing every day those grains of sand that left alone can bake together over time and build a wall, such a couple will inevitably end up in disaster. It's not doesn't take rocket science. Whenever you get married, you marry as an imperfect person, an imperfect person. The only perfect person in the world never got married, and so you need forgiveness in marriage. You need forgiveness as parents and children. As parents, we have to be big enough to say, I'm sorry, son. I messed up. Teachers and students, employers and employees, call it what it is. If it was sin, then call it sin and then ask for forgiveness. The more we recognize sin for what it is, the more we ask for forgiveness, the more we experience the beauty of human relationships. All out of that divine relationship because God knows what the problem is. The problem is sin. He calls it sin. He sends His Son. He deals with it. He doesn't throw sand over it at all. And so you see why it's a fine thing that we are given this barometer of the Christian life. And whenever you pray the Lord's Prayer, you're praying it. 
It's a frightening thing to say, but it's true. If we will not forgive, maybe that's because we are not Christians. We cannot be forgiven unless we have a forgiving spirit. It's true, for when God's grace comes into our hearts, it makes us forgiving. The bottom line is this. If I refuse to forgive someone who has asked for my forgiveness, there can only be one reason, and that is I have never really understood the grace of God by which I myself am forgiven. They are hard words, but they're given to us for a purpose. They're for religious people who can state all the answers, attend church, know all the doctrines, but hold a death grip on their grudges. They will not forgive their relatives for some infraction. They have no desire to pardon their former business associates. They nourish hatred, cherish animosity, revel in malice. This ought not to be so for the people of God. The fifth petition that only helps us to understand whether we are believers or not, but if we are believers, it also helps us to monitor our spiritual health. Because don't we all have this unhealthy tendency uh, to be more conscious of the wrongs of others than others have done to us than the wrongs that we have done to others? When others are hurt, we, we credit it to their oversensitive feelings, but when we are hurt, we tend to exaggerate the evil of the offender. In our own case, we accept excuses too easily. In the case of other people, we do not accept them easily enough. This, this slanted judgment of ours, this jaundiced eye, it takes a toll on our relationships. The absence of a forgiving spirit brings strain even in our best relations. It brings isolation. Self-pity finds its root here. Then comes depression, and as an unforgiving, offended sinner, offended self turns inward. We become even more fault-finding and hurt and unforgiving and depressed. It's all emotionally unhealthy. The heavens seem like brass to the unforgiving heart. And they are exactly that. But on the other hand, the benefits of her forgiving spirit cannot be calculated. And this, we should realize, is the, is the point of our scripture reading this afternoon. What is Matthew 18 about? It's about how people who are truly forgiven become forgiving. That means they no longer look down on, on that. Did you notice in Matthew 18? They don't even look down on children. It's beautiful what our Lord says in verse 10. See that you don't look down on one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. What was the point for Jesus to take a child? Jesus was saying every life matters. Every person matters. Every relationship matters. you got to repair all your relationships. That's one point. If the heavens are looking upon the face of these children, obviously these children, these, these people, these members of the church are important in the life of the church. He also mentions children in, in verse uh, uh, t- 3 and 4 because he says they're an example of what you have to do when you actually have to go the way of, of looking for forgiveness and looking for healing in your relationships, you have to be the least. You have to become like this child. You have to eat crow or whatever it is and say, I want to repair this. I don't want to live with this. I don't want this to go on to my deathbed or your deathbed. 
And that, then you have to become like a little child. And so, the point is, in the Jewish world, the angels, the, the angels represented every person before God. It's not talking about a guardian angel idea. Jesus doesn't speak about angels in the presence of the little ones protecting them. He speaks about their angels, their messengers in the presence of God appearing for him. It's a delightful way of expressing the unceasing love and care of the creator for his creatures. And if he cares, obviously we should care. God cares very much for the little members and so does he care for everyone else. For what is the motive behind verses 15 and following? This prescription our Lord gives about how to deal with sin needs to be seen in light of the verses before it. In dealing with the sin of others, we aren't seeking to satisfy our rights in the first place. This seems to be the first way in which Matthew 18 comes up. When somebody owes you a few thousand dollars, then you'll go to the pastor or the consistory and say, we've got to deal with this sin. The concern is your thousands of dollars, not the well-being of this brother who has sinned against you. But we aren't trying to get at what's coming to us. Rather, we are seeking the lost. And who are the lost? Anyone who does not experience release from sin's grasp. The real tragic thing about someone in the church owing you all this money is the fact that that someone is probably not living in a very good spiritual condition and you need to help that brother or sister come to live in a better way before God. We are seeking the lost. And who are the lost? Anyone who does not experience release from sin's grasp. And what would we show to such a person? Judgment, condemnation, or Christian love and compassion? We act as a shepherd trying to bring a wandering sheep back precisely by helping them experience the joy, the exhilaration of forgiveness. That's the great objective of the exercise. That's what we want to do. We go to him or her when they sin against us. We confront him when he or she offends us. The Lord Jesus shows us again the difficult demands of Christian love. To be sure, there, it's, it's easy for us to say, well, we'll just leave the matter alone. Just forget about it. Just forgive him and be done with it. But that's not the way of Christian love. If out of love we are concerned about our brother or sister and the sin they are trapped in and where that sin might lead him or to her, then we will go to them and we will speak with them. Jesus says there, there's, there's no way in which you can ever have grudges against anyone in the church. No way. In Matthew 5, 6, he says, if you go to the altar and there remember somebody has something against you, you have to go to him. In Matthew 18, he says, if somebody else sins against you, you have to go to him. The onus is always with you. The onus is always with me, with, 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 with us. Confrontation is called for confrontation with compassion. It's simply not Christian to say, especially when serious wrongs have been committed, oh, leave it alone. 
For then the sin is allowed to grow, the wound is allowed to fester. You're just condemning this person to the consequences of their sin. We are like the shepherd who doesn't go after the sheep, but lets the sheep destroy itself. Nor is it Christian to just forgive the person without seeing to it that he realizes he needs forgiveness and asks for forgiveness. It's a commonly held view. We have to forgive even if forgiveness isn't asked for. Really? We must always be ready to forgive. If we're not ready to forgive the things that we will not forgive, they will eat us up all the way to the grave. We must always be forgiving people who bear no grudges, but we do our brother or sister who has offended us no favors if we forgive them without even speaking to them about the offense that they have made, not just before us, but before God. Those are not Christian approaches. They display more hatred than they do love. They're more hurtful than helpful. They have to do with human pride. Because you see, you got to be like a child. You got to be willing to humble yourself as Jesus was to be able to go and say, brother, sister, we really need to talk about this. Christian love demands that we go and confront the Lord Jesus does not just allow. He commands Christians, go and tell him. Confront each other when lives become foul. It doesn't make us, doesn't give us all a mandate to be a busybody who runs rampant over other people, putting our noses in things that are of no concern to them. No, it's sin that's involved here. And Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, it's specific sin. Not a difference of opinion or a difference of approach either, but sin. We have no business calling someone else to account just because his opinion differs from ours. But we have a duty to do so when sin is involved and only what Scripture calls sin is sin, nothing else. And then it's a restricted kind of sin that's meant, namely a sin which somehow involves you when your brother sins against you. Jesus isn't talking about public stuff. He's talking about private stuff. Then we know of Christian love, we will go. What is it keeps us from going? It's the lack of Christian love. If we're only concerned about ourselves, we will resist or we will find some other way of dealing with the problem. We will even consider going to court or some other power move because after all, we have to get what's coming to us. But if we know of love, Christian love, which is always concerned about the other person rather than self, we will go and we will confront. And it will not only be Christian love that brings us there, it will also be Christian love that directs our speech and our actions when we do confront, you go not to prove him wrong and so to get even or something like that, but you go because the sin that has occurred, it's hampered the relationship you have with him. It disturbs life in the church among the people of God. It's sowing discord that distresses you even as it distresses the Lord. And there you do everything the way our Lord says it here. You first go privately, just between the two of you. Jesus says, private confrontation, first of all, gives room to the accused. Couched in love, it creates a forum wherein the brother or sister can easily see his or her wrong, confess it, 
and turn from it. Besides, you might even find out that you were wrong in the presumptions that you made and the arguments that you misjudged or misunderstood. So private confrontation is the first avenue. And if the matter is cleared up and your brother or sister repents, you put it behind you, you act as if it never happened, don't bring it up again, you rejoice, and in that same Christian love, you keep it to yourself. Jesus says jubilantly, then you have gained your brother. So it must be in the church. Swift action must be taken much more often whenever any such root of bitterness threatens to ruin the fellowship of the church. Quick, private, confrontation kind of conversations are acts of love that must happen often in Christian communities. And even if it's necessary to report such a brother or sister to the church, the one and only motive ought to be your love and your concern for that person. Not self-righteousness, not all fix them, but the love of God in Christ. The fact that anyone who is blind to their own sin is a lost sheep, and we don't want any brother or sister, small or great, to be lost Love for the brotherhood is the motive. And even if the church has to put him or her out of the fellowship of the church, it's still it's not condemnation, but it's compassion that is necessary. All your actions and all your words are still directed by Christian love. You see this brother who is not your brother anymore, and everything you do and say is geared to making him your brother or sister again. You see this brother, and you know that living this way, he doesn't fit in the fellowship of the church, and so you seek to influence his living and his thinking so that he comes back into the fellowship. To shut the door totally is the easy way. And people sometimes argue that because Jesus says you should be a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, just a minute. Who did Jesus spend a lot of time with? Gentiles and tax collectors. And what was he doing with, uh, when he was a Gentile and tax collector? When he was with Gentiles and tax collectors, he wasn't compromising along with them. He wasn't giving in to their sins. He was helping them see the folly of their ways. His words and his actions were all geared to bringing them back to the fold, to the flock of the people of God. Christian love puts us on a hard road again, a road wherein we need to evaluate everything we do and everything we say towards that person so as to determine how to bring him or her back again. Here it is again, the action of the seeking shepherd who will not let go because he wants that one sheep. This is what we are this is how we conduct ourselves. We want them back into the fold. And you know what one of the benefits of this is? This, think of it. We are never more close to God than when we forgive. When we don't want to forgive, when we're hard about this, we don't resemble God. We don't recognize God in that. But when we are willing to forgive, then we are never closer to God. We're performing a function that has its origin in heaven. When we forgive, we're like the Father. We're like the Son. We're like the Spirit. 
We're like the son who said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He gives them the benefit of the doubt. They know not what they do. We, see to, we say to err is human, and that is true, but we forget the last part of that saying, and to forgive is divine. To err is human, to forgive is divine, said Alexander Pope, and so it is. We are never more beautiful and more noble, more Christ-like than when we forgive, for then we're like God Himself. After all, where do we learn about forgiveness? Not from the world. We learn about it from God. God speaks A to Z, lessons about forgiveness. So to some, it's a terrible petition. It depends on your life, where you're at. But to others who know its depths and realize its great principles, it's a wonderful thing. And so it brings us to the central thrust of this petition. Here we're not only praying for a forgiving spirit, for the willingness to forgive anyone for anything at all, but we are praying for forgiveness ourselves. Forgive us our debts. It speaks not only about attitudes, but also about acts. Not only about dispositions, but also about deeds. It's first of all very, very personal. When we really pray this petition, we are praying for ourselves first of all. It's probably true that most people who repeat this do not see themselves as sinners. They usher it with an attitude which says, I'm praying this along with all those other people who need it. We don't see it. We are debtors, trespassers, offenders. We need this forgiveness. We are the ones who need this. Forgive me my debts. We ought to be able to pray. If we say with Paul, I am the foremost of sinners, then we will say, I stand desperately in need of this forgiveness. Today, people want to take the word sin out of the vocabulary, but to ignore sin or to call it by any other name is just as foolish as taking a bottle of poison and changing the label so as to suggest it's something less dangerous. The milder you make the label, the more dangerous you make the poison. Sin, plain, old-fashioned sin, is what we're all suffering from today. And it will do us far more harm than good to try to dress it upon, to dress it up with some fancy, more attractive label. We don't need a new label for it. We need to realize what it is and how it's an evil among us, the evil that's in us, the evil that needs to be eradicated. It needed so badly to be eradicated that Jesus even went to the tree of the cross for it. Nor should we remove the word forgiveness. If we are spiritually mature, we will know, I need this as well. Every one of my sins every day must be taken to the tree of the cross. To him who hung there between the murderer and the thief. To him, the perfectly innocent one who was reckoned among the transgressors in order that we, the real transgressors, might be reckoned dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Unbelievers may shirk sin. But healthy believers know that every day, every evening, we have something to confess. 
So guard your spiritual health, brothers and sisters. Guard it not by confessing someone else's sin or by talking about someone else's sin, but your own sin. Every child of God should cultivate the grace of gratitude. An unthankful heart is fertile soil for all kinds of sins, but a grateful heart opens the heart to further blessings and pleases and glorifies the Father. And that is a great motive, is it not? Pray then, live then like this. Amen.